Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hello there, welcome to a brand new Arsblog Arscast right here on Arsblog.com. How are you? I hope you're well. Thank you for being here as always. And thank you as well for all the kind words on the uh, the episode we did midweek. A bit, a bit extracurricular, I think you would say, but it felt like we needed to discuss all the bits we discussed with David Ornstein from the BBC. I'm so glad so many of you enjoyed that episode, even if content-wise, you know, it could have been more cheery, could have been a bit more upbeat, but that's not on us. That's simply the circumstances. That is the Arsenal world that we live in at this moment in time. But some good news. Good news, everyone. Uh, football is is back. That's right. Football is back. After two weeks of introspection, two weeks of wondering where it all went wrong at Anfield, two weeks of wondering what the fuck are we doing in this transfer window at all? Well, it wasn't actually... Two weeks, was it? Because the uh, transfer window closed midway through that international break. But it was so fucked up, it felt like two weeks. I think uh, I think that's fair to say. But tomorrow, we look to get ourselves back on track. A home game against Bournemouth. To be fair, to be fair, you could have had worse. It could have been uh, an away trip to Stamford Bridge, for example. But that's next week, and we'll worry about that on next week's Arscast. For now, we'll uh, we'll concentrate on what's going on this weekend, and that is, of course, the visit of Bournemouth to the Emirates. Uh, we'll have some team news a bit later on. Arsene Wenger was talking at his press conference yesterday. He was asked about all the things you would expect him to be asked about. He was asked about uh, Alex Oxlade-Chamberlain and said that his departure could open up the door for Reese Nelson and Joe Willock. So that's good news. Uh, he talked about Alexis Sanchez and said he thinks Alexis will be fine. He's no questions over his character or commitment or anything like that, but refused to be drawn over the whole story. You know, that whole thing where we, you know, tried to uh, sell him right at the end of the transfer window. He didn't really want to discuss that too much. As you as you might expect, he talked about Mesut Ozil and uh, his criticism of Arsenal legends and said, hey, some of our legends, they are their weaknesses too. Why can't we all just get along like one big happy family? He also talked about, you know, wanting the fans to be on side and to support the team. It's very early in the season, etc., etc., which, of course, it is. And he said fans, you know, shouldn't jump to conclusions about what this team is capable of, even though they can look at the Liverpool game. And yes, we played terribly against Liverpool, but, you know, we, we've got to get behind the team. And I think during the 90 minutes and during the games, fans will, if they can see that the team is putting the effort in, they will get behind the team. But, you know, you can't... Uh You can't expect people to be too understanding of that display against Liverpool. And then he was asked if a win against Bournemouth might get the fans off off his back uh, and the back of the club to an extent. And he said, and I quote here, 
you work very hard to get our fans on our back. I think he was talking about the media in general rather than specifically the dude who asked the question. Maybe he could have been being that specific, but uh, you you work very hard to get our fans on our back. So I think we should point fingers at the media because they were completely wrong to uh, choose Alex Oxlade-Chamberlain, a right wing back over Hector Bellerin when when the media knew that Alex Oxlade-Chamberlain was leaving for Liverpool, having already told the club and the media... Well, they decided to drop Alexandra Lacazette, did they not? The club record signing from Lyon, 46, 48 million pounds, whatever it was, a lethal striker, the man you might use in a game against the top team to, you know, score goals. The media, fucking bastard media, they left him on the bench. And and the other new signing, say Kolasinac, they left him on the bench as well when we could have done with a bit of grit, a bit of power, a bit of tank action down that left-hand side. Yeah. Stupid media not telling those players what way they should play, making them unfamiliar and confused with a system that looked a bit lopsided. And if you ask me, it's media out. Media out! If they're going to keep fucking up our team selections like this, well then, I want no part of it. I want a different media. Is the transfer window for media closed? It's a bit much, isn't it, to blame the media, the journalists, and everything else, even if we know they're prone to to hyping up bad situations. We know that's the case. We know that every molehill of a crisis has turned into a mountain. We, we understand that. We know how it works, but it wasn't anything to do with them. It was to do with this team going out and getting absolutely hammered in a big game and looking like they didn't give a shit. That's what got people on the back of the manager and on the players and of the club. Not the media, not the reporting of it, not the analysis of it, not the punditry or anything else. It was that performance. So, you know, I, I understand his need to deflect a little bit. But, you know, sometimes you've just got to hold your hand up and say, yes, it was all our fault. And he did say, yes, I'm not in denial that we played poorly. But you just say that. Leave it at that. That's basically all there is to say about it. There's no need to point fingers elsewhere because it's nobody else's fault. Accept the full responsibility and let's move on and try and do better in the next game. When you start trying to shift the blame around and suggest maybe that there's some kind of media conspiracy to make things worse than they are, I don't think that's the case. It's all driven by results and it's driven by performances and the performance was abject and not good enough and that's what raised the ire. Not the way people spoke about it in the newspapers or on TV or on radio. Even if there are, obviously, as I say again, some absolute wind-up merchants out there who will look at something like that and make hay while the sun shines. But that's not the real story. That's not what it's about. So, uh, yeah, the uh, press conference also got a little bit tetchy. It It felt like the manager was getting a bit wound up. And uh, at that point, the uh, club's communications officer... He uh, he put things to a halt like this. Thank you very much. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Can't be the easiest job at this moment in time, Arsenal communications officer, but it just got me thinking, like, what if things continue to go wrong? What if things go badly? What will what will the press conferences be like then? Good morning. Awesome. Good morning. Thank you very much. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Let's uh, let's hope it doesn't come to that. Uh, a little bit later on in the show, I'm going to be talking to Michael Cox uh, of Zonal Marking about 
Arsenal's current tactical setup, should we go back to a back four? Is it likely that Arsene Wenger is going to do that? And how might he solve the issues that we've got in midfield? But first, uh, to talk about the transfer window in general, rather than Arsenal's failings in it in particular, which is a nice break, I guess. Um, I'm delighted to welcome back to the podcast from Football 365, Daniel Story. Hi there. Hi there. You all right, Andrew? I'm okay. I want to ask you about the transfer window in general as a thing, as both a football fan and a football writer, somebody who who spends all day writing about football, do you view it in a distinct way as a fan or as a writer, or are both those things entwined? Um, I think they're actually the opposite. They're almost completely separate in that as a writer, I kind of feel like I have to... um, I'm sort of invited to have this slightly sneering look of the transfer window and <laughs> and see it as a you know a very a gauche uh, idea and, and and everyone's behaviour quite distasteful and yet as a fan albeit of, of a championship club I, I can't help but be interested in who my club is going to sign so yeah. that kind of answers the question for me. Um, I, I, as a, in a work sense, I don't particularly like it. I, I love football as a product and as a game and, and for what it is much much more than 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 the transfer side of things um that said i can i can fully understand why why fans completely buy into that culture and are you know obsessed to the point of fever about finding out who their club is going to play because it, it, there's no doubt that it makes a bigger difference than ever the, the you know the business a club does in the transfer window and that's particularly true at, at elite clubs and and obviously Arsenal. Well, look, I've kind of done Arsenal to death really in terms of transfers in and transfers out and the ones that happened and and didn't happen. <laughs> but I think there is there is something to say about the transfer window and the culture around it and the culture around transfers in general. The it, it's kind of weird because you have this amazing culture of misinformation and lies. Mm-hmm. And most people will look at the transfer window and transfer stories, and you can think of the websites and uh, and everything else, and and the 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 emergence of ITKs in the nose on Twitter, you know, Agent Two Five Seven, and all this bollocks yeah. that we all know deep down is just nonsense. People are making stuff up. People are piggybacking on the transfer window in order to deceive people, but people are also quite willing to be deceived in the sense that they they know deep down that it's, it's this is rubbish, the idea Messi could be signing for Arsenal, but yeah, I know it's rubbish, but but what if? In, in, a, in a way, people are kind of being taken advantage of, but also are willing to let themselves be taken advantage of. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, um, ripe for exploitation, I'd say. Yeah, that, <laughs> it's an industry entirely built on hope, as you say. It's also an industry, and... In, in, as you well know, that there are some very many good journalists who have who have information and pass on that information and um, and are doing their job in doing so. The, the, the issue comes firstly from you, from where you say about the lies, and there are people that do that. And social media is a very obvious place for those because it's an anonymous medium by and large, and um, and they know that that is a place where people congregate who want to hear information and are prepared to um, suspend reasonable belief. Um, in hope of something to kind of not necessarily to fuel their club's success, because as you say, they, you know, they don't necessarily believe it, but just to kind of sustain their own interest. I, I liken it to people watching soap operas, which I don't do. And I can't see the attraction of watching soap operas because watching it, I know it's not real life. And therefore I know it doesn't affect real life, but 
but people still watch them and take enjoyment out of that. And I think that's kind of how people view the transfer window now as a sort of a football soap opera that it doesn't really matter if things are real as long as I'm interested in it. Yeah. Um, The other, the other thing, the other side of it and and something that I I don't think has ever been more obvious than it was this summer is the idea of transfer stories and transfer information um, presented honestly by reporters and journalists but kind of leaked for a reason. It, they might be true in that, you know, a journalist might have been told a certain story, but that doesn't mean that things are likely to happen. And and clubs are clearly complicit and, and you know, in, in some instances explicit in that, in terms of leaking information that they want to get out there mm. rather than because it's true. Um, and that is a huge problem because it kind of undermines the whole process. It, it, it understandably makes us incredibly cynical about everything by default which undermines the job of the you know undermines the things that are true so now every transfer every transfer is 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 doubted up to the point i think until it actually happens at least by one party which is which is a very bizarre position to be in. Yeah, I think that's where you hear that. You know, I won't believe it till I see the guy standing there with the shirt on. And, and you know, yeah. it is also fair to say, of course, that there are people who have good information and good sources. And I think we've seen that this season from an Arsenal point of view, that people have been uh, reliable in the past. But because of, A, perhaps the vagaries of the transfer market, some of that information ends up looking like it wasn't true, but maybe it was true right to the point uh, where it wasn't, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. But also, I think you're right that, that clubs and there are people with vested interests in getting certain information out there that might either help them to buy a player or help them uh, manage the message to keep fans quiet or to to keep fans happy or, or even to wind up fans, it seems, at times. Um, that yeah, there is, there is, there are these very many moving parts. It's like perhaps um, if we look at the transfer window like a duck, it looks like it's going along very smoothly on the surface, but underneath those little flippers are going like crazy. Yeah, I, I, I do think part of this is is because we are in that in this information age with social media where perhaps we are just hearing more of what's happening. We're kind of seeing more into the cogs turning in the machine or we're seeing, to use your analogy, we're seeing further beneath the water, perhaps. I, I'm, I think that is an argument. And I think that's true. Um, but I agree. I also think that, that clubs in particular and, and obviously agents are managing those messages so deliberately now that misinformation is almost as important as information getting out there which is is a slight well, i don't really know where that ends other than in a huge amount of mistrust in the whole process and i think we have started this summer to see a kind of an anti-movement against the uh, the concept of the transfer window because it, 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 it's become a parody of itself it, it absolutely has and and broadcasters and clubs and agents and fans are all complicit in that mm. yeah i mean i i I have to say, I think there is a danger of the transfer system itself becoming far too important or viewed as far too important when really what happens on the pitch is is the main thing, that football is what we're all interested in. And of course, what happens in the transfer window has an impact on what happens on the pitch. We're not blind to that. But I do mm. feel like there is, it's encroaching ever more and more over what what we should be focusing on, which is which is the game itself. On that, the Premier League have proposed some rules, uh, rule changes for next season onwards, which may put them at a disadvantage because other transfer windows are going to remain open throughout Europe. But the idea, 
and it's one that's been suggested countless times in the past, that the transfer window should close before the first game of the season. And to me, that makes absolute perfect sense. Uh, and you wonder why it's taken so long for it to be uh, be implemented. Yeah, it's one of the, as exactly as you say, it's one of those things that um, and when it actually changes, I think we'll all think, why was it ever any different? Because the reason for the, inter- one of the reasons for the introduction of the transfer window was to take the focus off. Um, to take focus off, off, you know, off transfers going on mid-season and clubs being able to kind of save themselves by splurging on players in March and April that they then didn't particularly want come May or June. Well, it's, you know, <laughs> to do that, why have we not got, gone the whole hog and therefore said, well, it is a summer event, it is a summer saga and therefore we leave it behind at the start of the season. I completely agree and I kind of, you know, it's easy for me to say now, but I always have. Um, whether or not... <laughs> Whether or not it will, you know, it will actually change anything is a different question. Other than reducing the time of the window, will it persuade clubs to buy any earlier? I'm not sure. Will it persuade clubs not to have this, you know, ridiculous rigmarole in the final hours of the window, where Leicester City can miss out on signing Adrian Silva by apparently 14 seconds after the deadline when they've had three months to do it? Mm. I don't know. I don't know if it will, but it will certainly, it will certainly stop that um, spotlight shining on anything other than the football when the football started yeah no I think you're right I don't think it will change the way that clubs operate because the way that the market works of course people are playing games they're waiting till the last minute to see if they can do a better deal it does by its very nature uh make business happen towards the end of that period so uh, the only thing it will do in that sense i think is provide at least clarity when the window closes clubs know what what they have at least until january and on that arson wenger this week you may question his timing uh, when it comes to talking about changes to the transfer system and the transfer window and i know you know certainly when i saw it i was going oh god and i know a lot of arsenal fans will say this is just wenger trying to make excuses for his own uh, lack of action in the in the transfer window but he says what you should do is do away with the January transfer window as well. And I have to say, leaving all of what he did or didn't do in the transfer window and his record in the transfer window aside, if you look at that in isolation, I think that's an absolutely great idea as well because you have then this clarity for the whole season. You're not worried about uh, what's going to happen in January. Is a player going to be tapped up? Is somebody going to leave? Even if you even if you you end up short of players, your solution then has to be internal. Perhaps it allows you to put a little more faith in youth, or or you're forced to put a little more faith in young mm-hmm. players that you produce through your academy, and you don't have another month of of this circus, this media hysteria, where the bloke with the yellow tie becomes this celebrity because of what? Because he just happens to be the face of the transfer window. It, it to me that makes sense as well. Yeah, I again completely agree. Um, I, I do also agree that it's very timely of Wenger to say it, but <laughs> it should be said that Wenger has not been a, a huge exponent of of the transfer, the January transfer window. And actually, as a concept, when it when it was first introduced, it became a not a fifty fifty split because clubs will always look to do their, their their business at the start of a season. But it's certainly tailed off in recent years. The amount of the action. I mean, I remember working the January transfer deadline day, and it. it you know, it, it became a joke effectively because it was just, it, it was, there was no news and clubs just simply really weren't interested in doing deals because they'd done exactly as you say, they'd planned for the season and, and that is wholly appropriate. Mm. Um, 
it, 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 make, it makes no sense whatsoever. The, the only sense it makes is in terms of clubs, in that there's a, there's a break for European clubs and elite clubs in the Champions League that they kind of have a, you know, they have a break. And in and, and, and Europe, they obviously have the winter break, so therefore they can kind of take that off-season to do it. But in England, whereby we, we have constant football, and actually December and January is one of the busiest times, mm. it makes no sense at all. No. So how are you viewing the uh, the Premier League? Uh, I, I know it's not. Uh, there's not much we can work on. Uh, Arsene Wenger, again, stressing it's very early in the window to make definitive, or in the season, rather, to make definitive judgments about what's, what's going on. But certainly Arsenal's start has been... I don't know what the right word here is. I'm trying to think of the uh, word I haven't used in the last number of podcasts. But look, it has been far from optimal, I think you would say. Yeah. Um, it, it feels like it's it's not taken very much to scratch off a lot of the old wounds. Yeah, uh, it's, it's. I mean, it's, it's, it's absolutely... It would be bizarre if it wasn't so utterly predictable and believable. But yeah, I, I, I have to say, not only did we, we see this coming, but... Wenger kind of asked for this, you know, he, he has preached, you know, I think first summer, two years ago, he preached this idea of cohesion and this idea that keeping the squad the same was was the way forward. And after last season, he kind of built on that argument and said, what we need is, is cohesion between all of us. And the fact that there was, you know, upheaval around my contract and about Mesut Ozil and Alexis Sanchez, the fact there was that complete uncertainty. That is what undermined us last season. That is the reason we finished fifth and effectively the reason we finished fifth in the Premier League. Um, and therefore he invited that and he must have known that. He cannot pretend he did anything otherwise. Uh, and to pretend anything otherwise is to willfully mislead those fans who he preached that argument to ac- across this summer. Um, having you know, having forced that, that manifesto of cohesion is everything, to then completely undermine that in the first three weeks of the season after he'd signed that two deal is is frankly ludicrous. And and I don't see this season, I don't see Arsenal having that huge rebound of form that they normally get post-mini crises or medium-sized crises or whatever size crises this is now. Um, I don't see that happening very easily simply because... I don't think it's it's simply a question of, you know, the same old argument about the lack of leaders. I think it's just a question that there are too many key players now there that simply aren't particularly bothered about staying at that club. And that only ends one way. Um, yeah. w- we saw his, frankly, pathetic and desperate attempts to keep Alex Oxlade-Chamberlain by, by effectively crowfiring him into a defence that weakened that defence. I, I, I have no doubt about that. Mm. And he did that to try and keep Alex Oxlade-Chamberlain. But then Oxley's claiming to then move to Liverpool and say, well, what I want to do is play in central midfield, which wasn't where he was getting picked in those first three games anyway. As I say, it would be bizarre it wasn't so believable. Yeah, I mean, uh, this morning, a quote from Alex (laughs) Oxlade-Chamberlain. He's been asked about what his position is going to be at Liverpool. And he says, whether it's an attacking midfield positions or one of the wider positions, I'm not too fussed. Uh, yeah. So I mean, he is he is a man happy to have got out of town. It, it seems like it that you know the 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 idea that he wants to play in central midfield. Fine, I get behind that. But to go to Liverpool and then say you don't really care where you're playing uh, suggests that, the, that there's more to it. I mean, as an objective observer, what was your view of the the performance at Anfield? To me, it looked like uh, a team that just did not believe in what they were being asked to do, mm. or at the very best they weren't being asked to do things that they understood and neither of those things reflects particularly well on the manager or, or augurs well for the future. Yeah, I think there's there's two things. Firstly, you're absolutely right. They did look completely disorganised and complete, complete lack of cohesion, particularly defensively, which is is 
it actually reminded me of, of watching Crystal Palace in the first two games. Um, Crystal Palace, who are reportedly thinking of sacking their manager four games into a season because they're worried about his tactics and they're worried about the lack of of, um, of solidity in defence. And for Arsene Wenger, the longest serving manager, to, to remind of Frank de Boer, the shortest serving Premier League manager, is, is incredibly worrying, albeit against a far better team in, mm. in Liverpool. The other thing that I would say is that I think people overlook, when, when you talk about Arsenal being dismantled by Liverpool, which they were, I think we kind of, we underestimate how small a decline it needs for one elite team to make another elite team look very silly. This doesn't have to be an Arsenal team playing at 20, 30%. This can be an Arsenal player in which one or two key players, and they're very obvious, the names, are not quite at their full level in terms of, you know, in terms of mental motivation or in terms of physical exertion. And very quickly, a good side managed by a good manager, of which Liverpool are, will dismantle that team very easily. Mm. Jurgen Klopp will have worked in the days up to the game and he will have known that if Arsenal pick those two fullbacks who like to bomb, those two wingbacks who like to bomb on, and those three central defenders who can very easily be pulled out of position by his three forwards, he will know and he will have worked on that plan. And it worked so obviously. I mean, the Salah goal was the, was the obvious example. Uh, for, for Wenger not to understand and not to see things that, you know, I don't consider myself a tactical expert and I'm sure a lot of supporters feel the same. We saw that coming. It was so predictable. Mm. For Arsenal to have jumped into a trap, marked trap here, and, <laughs> uh, you know, to willfully have jumped into that trap is so damning, so mm. damning. Uh, very final question on Arsenal before we get on to something else. But do you do you view Arsenal as a team uh, and as a squad capable of getting into the top four because we have seen Arsenal get some bad results we have seen them take a pasting away from home at big sides we have seen them look like they're just completely on the outs but there is this inbuilt resilience there is this ability to turn things around and to go on these runs which I won't say paper over cracks but certainly make things look a lot better do you see that within this team this season I think the players they have, the squad they have, is is plenty strong enough to finish in the top four. I think it's a stronger squad than Tottenham have. Um, whether it's a whether it has whether their key players, top three or four key players, are as good as Tottenham is another question. But I think the squad is. I think if you, you know, if you, I, I made a list of Arsenal's first eleven and second eleven, and struggled to get Theo Walcott into that second eleven, and certainly struggled to get Jack Wilshere into that second eleven, and and then there's still Santi Cazorla to come back, even hopefully when. Mm. So I think in terms of the squad, I, th- I certainly think it's strong enough. The, the question is whether as a unit and managed by that manager, they have the right person to get the most out of them. And, and I, I think you would be very hard pushed to argue that they do. Um, so it then becomes a question of how how well can that squad kind of motivate itself um, in terms of personal ambition to break back into the top four. And I think on that, they struggle. I think it's, I think the difference between... I think Arsenal and Liverpool are effectively two ends of the you know two ends of the spectrum this season. I think Liverpool's squad is far weaker overall than Arsenal's, but I think they have a manager who is who is able to get great in the sum of its parts, and and that was always Arsene's thing. That was always what he did, and and I think he now struggles as much as anyone to do that. Mm. All right, well look, we'll wait and see what happens. Obviously, uh, there are thirty five games to go in the Premier League season, and, and the excitement <laughs> of the Europa League is is upon us as well this season. So that's something different. But I want to talk about the uh, the book that you've just released. It's uh, called Portrait of an Icon, and this is based off 
uh, a column that you've been writing on Football 365 for a number of years. Can you give me a bit of background on the book and uh, and just sort of generally, what, what is it that's going to appeal to football fans and Arsenal fans about this? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's, as you say, it started out as a, as a series in October 2015 and actually started with Dennis Bergkamp. Um, and our, the idea was just to, you know, was not to create a book. It was just to have a, a fairly long running series on the site that kind of satisfied my love of writing flowery, nostalgic pieces about, about players and managers. Um, and it does that, you know, the 2000 words around a pop and it's gone through some of the greatest players, some of the greatest coaches and very early in the series, I, I wrote the Bobby Robson portrait, who is a, a hero of mine. My family's from the Northeast and, you know, I'm an, an England fan. And, um, and a light bulb kind of went off in my mind. I, I know the brilliant work of the Bobby Robson Foundation, which was formed a few months before his sad passing when he was asked to raise half a million for a cancer ward. And he did that in six weeks and said, actually, I can do more here. Uh, the foundation aims to find new ways to, to treat and beat cancer and, and still does so in Bobby's name today. Um, and so when I'd written that portrait, it, it you know it set off a light bulb very quickly that I thought this would be a great thing to do. Uh, write it for the website, collate it for the book, sell it for the charity. Um, that's what we're doing. We, we're selling the book at thirteen ninety nine. We're managing to get ten pounds to the charity. It's got my words, and even even far better than that, it's got some incredible Im- you know illustrative work done by by a number of people who have donated their work for free. Um, and I, I hope it's something that football fans will enjoy. As an Arsenal perspective, we've got, as I say, the, season, the series started with Bergkamp, who was included for his um, his incredible work ethic as well as his extraordinary talent and talent that was honed through practice. Importantly, not just you know not purely natural ability. Mm. Um, it has Arsene Wenger for obvious reasons, who's one of only uh, eight managers who I've included in the book because of. Um, and I hope that whatever happens now, there there is a huge section of Arsenal fans and who I would call the provocatively would call the proper supporters who can who can separate what Wenger is now than than what he was and what he did not just for Arsenal but for English football. Um, and there's Tony Adams in there who I consider as one of English football's greatest ever captains and also surely one of English football's strongest characters in the t- in terms of the way he came back with with very little professional help initially um, mm. came back from, from personal demons to be, to continue to be the, you know, the player he was for Arsenal is, is verging on a superhuman achievement and, and one that is too easily overlooked, I think mm. um, given, given not just his impact on a George Graham team, but on a, you know, his, his embracing of the Arsene Wenger era as well is, is something that we should, we should, and I know Arsenal fans do, but other fans as well should, should truly recognise as an extraordinary achievement. All right. Well, look, uh, the book is called Portrait of an Icon. Ten pounds from thirteen ninety nine going to the Bobby Robson Foundation is a great contribution. Where can people get it? If you go to portraitofanicon.co.uk, that links through to the to the publishers page. We're not selling it through Amazon or Waterstone simply because they, take they obviously too much take money. a cut, and yeah. we want to make our, you know, we want to make as much as possible. So yeah, portraitofanicon.co.uk. All right, Daniel. Uh, good luck with the book, and uh, thanks very much for talking to me today. We'll catch up during the season. Thank you very much. Cheers. Thanks very much indeed to Daniel. You can find him on Twitter at Daniel Story, and of course read his stuff on Football Three Six Five. The book is really good. There's some really excellent pieces in there, aside from the Arsenal ones, and of course. Uh, £10 going to the Bobby Robson Foundation to fight cancer and find new ways to treat cancer. I don't know how anybody could argue against that. Right, we're going to have a tactical look at what Arsenal might do in the next few games uh, with Michael Cox from Zonal Marking. That's right after this. 
Arsenal Football Club today announced a major new attraction for Emirates Stadium. Supporters are asked to bring a sheet of paper with up to ten names as suggestions for a flock of kittens which are now ready to be adopted at a local animal shelter, after which they'll be paid in coins. Arsenal chairman Sir Chips Keswick said, Nobody can deny that this will be a cat list for change. Meow. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Right. Questions remain over Arsenal's back three system. Is it as solid as we want it to be? Do the players feel as comfortable as they should playing it? Is the manager comfortable deploying it because he doesn't seem to quite know where to put people with me to discuss that and perhaps a move to a back four and how we might address our midfield issues in light of that I'm delighted to welcome back to the show Michael Cox from Zonal Marking. Hi Michael how are you? I'm very well thank you Andrew Excellent. I want to talk to you about Arsene Wenger and tactics and a manager who was deemed tactically inflexible by many for many years switched to a back three, as we know, towards the end of last season in, I guess, what wouldn't be seen necessarily as a a great tactical decision, but one perhaps born out of desperation in a way that, you know, he had to try something to get this team back on track. Um, until recently, it's been fairly successful in terms of results. The last two games obviously haven't gone very well, but there were nine wins out of 10 at the end of last season, an FA Cup final win, Community Shield win, one uh, win on the first day of the season. But it, 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 it seems to me anyway that the longer it's gone on with a back three, the more uncomfortable Arsenal look playing it. Yeah, I think that's a very good point and a very fair analysis. Um, and to be honest, I'm not sure it's entirely different from other teams' experiences with a back three. When you look at Chelsea, obviously Chelsea won the league and they're still going very well. But when they initially switched to a back three, of course, after that uh, defeat at the Emirates last season, they were just unstoppable for the first few games. No one scored against them for, I think, six games. Um, so they had that incredible run. Then they had a run where they were still winning but conceding almost every week. And then towards the end of the season, um, it felt like teams worked them out a little bit and, you know, found weaknesses. And I think what we're seeing is, you know, teams now put so much emphasis upon scouting the opposition. You know, they have whole statistical teams that basically spend their time working out how to play against the opposition. That eventually, you know, a change of system can work for one or two games, but then when the opponents can kind of find patterns and find particular weaknesses, the impact of that formation change tends to wear off. And it was the same for Liverpool a few years ago in that season where they came close to winning the title 2013-14. They switched to a three-man defence and it worked very well. And then I think it was actually the game at the Emirates when Arsenal beat them 2-0 with a, I remember Ramsey scoring a very good mm. goal. 
that kind of exposed them and they switched away from it. So, you know, I think formation changes like this often have a very short-term impact, but maybe that, um, that short-term period is over for Arsenal now. Yeah, I think you, I think you wrote um, in So Paddy Got Up, was it about Arsene Wenger talking about four four two? how it's the ideal system because you have you cover 60% of the pitch. I can't remember exactly what what his quote was on that. You can probably remember better than I can. But, you know, yeah. if that's if that's the positive of 4-4-2, what would be the, you know, from a tactical point of view, what would be the, the weakness of playing three at the back? Or what are the areas that can be exposed more easily than when you're playing with a back four? Well, I think the Liverpool game was a very good example of the fact that your, your three defenders have to be very good at defending um, in one-on-one situations, and they have to be very mobile and, and capable of covering the flanks. And it, it seems slightly inevitable that Salah and, and Mane were going to cause Arsenal so many problems, um, and indeed they did. Um, I think overall it is a nicely balanced system if you have the right players. I think, you know, with, with Ozil and Sanchez last season, um, they certainly found freedom between the lines, and I think it's probably the best way of putting them in their roughly favoured positions. I, I mean, personally, I, I quite like it when Sanchez has, has played up front. I think he's better in that role, but he clearly likes playing a little bit deeper, so it works well there. I think one of the weaknesses as well is that it asks an incredible amount of the wing-backs in terms of energy, in terms of covering ground. Um, and, you know, the intensity of football has just moved on so much in the last 20 years from the last time Arsenal played, um, you know, wing-backs. I mean, Dixon and Winterburn did very well in in that system but you certainly can't imagine those you know that kind of, kind of player um coping as a wing back in today's football um you know let alone uh, two players who were in their mid 30s at, yeah. at that point um i mean it feels like i mean you, you you might well have had this discussion already personally i, I think that Oxlade Chamberlain was a player who struggled to find his best position, and I think the attributes that he has, wing back probably was the best position for him. He clearly doesn't seem to like that. Um, but now that he's left, I'm not sure that Arsenal really have a squad packed with players who can play wing back. Indeed, Kieran Gibbs, I know, had fallen down the pecking order, but I thought he did quite well as a wing back last season, and obviously he's no longer an option either. Mm. I mean, that that's part of it as well, and obviously having central defenders that you trust in is a very important part of a back three, and when Arsene Wenger doesn't seem to have that much faith in the central defenders that he has, and uh, when you look at the squad, Mustafi, he was ready to let him go, Per Mertesacker remains on the bench, despite being fit, and despite being, to my mind, a a, a good a good option for that central position in a back three. He doesn't seem to want to use him there. Callum Chambers was on the way out. Rob Holding, a young player who's struggling a little bit. So he might be looking at his back three options and thinking, well, it's hard for me to pick three centre-halves that I like. Maybe maybe it's time to go back to, to two. And obviously Arsene Wenger is a man who has been wedded to a back four throughout his Arsenal career. When we look at the the performance at Anfield, for example, um, will players, when they go out playing in a system that has been relatively, uh, what's the word I'm looking for here, unknown to them or unfamiliar to them, rather, um, it's it's really important that the manager is very precise in his in his instructions and what he tells them, uh, what he wants from them, and how they should behave on the pitch. And it felt to me a little bit like they looked confused with what with uh, the way they were being asked to play. Yeah, I think that's very fair. Um, I mean, I think the important thing to remember is that 
the biggest failing against Liverpool, in my opinion, I think probably most people's opinion, wasn't necessarily the back three or the defence. It was, you know, the midfield, the, the lack of protection for the defence with, you know, Ramsey popping up in centre-forward positions and exposing Xhaka, who, you know, I think is a very good player, but you can't leave him isolated in front of the defence against three on-rushing Liverpool players. It just doesn't work. And so, you know, regardless of whether Wenger plays a back three or back four, I think the important thing is you've got to protect them well. And I, you know, would go back to... I mean, the only comparable de- defeat to the Liverpool defeat in terms of the bad performance, I think, was the 8-2, which was, I think, almost exactly six years ago at Old Trafford. And one of the things Arsenal had after that game was Mikel Arteta came in. And Arteta spent the first 10 games just sitting alongside, uh, I think it was Song at that at that point, but he played very defensively and just realised that, you know, he needed to protect the defence, he needed to cover that space. And then towards the end of the season, we saw Arteta, Arteta in a little bit more of a attacking role. But the importance was just to be solid, just to protect the defence. And I think that's what Arsenal need. Obviously, they don't have any new player coming in like, um, you know, like Arteta was signed. But there are players who can come in. I mean, Coquelin... Um, He's not a perfect footballer, but I think in terms of a positional responsibility, he's broadly good. And I think Mohamed Elneny is the kind of player that could do well against Bournemouth. He's responsible in a positional sense, but is more comfortable in possession than Coquelin. Um, and it was interesting that Ramsey was sacrificed at halftime at Anfield. I know there was, um, you know, there were reports he collected <laughs> injury, um, but I wouldn't be surprised if Wenger was, you know, just desperate to have some solidity there. And that's why he brought on Coquelin. So maybe... Um, especially with Ramsey away with Wales this week. Maybe this will be a game where he plays kind of two holding midfielders, which I think would help the defence a lot. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Ramsey did well for Wales. Uh, Didn't look that injured for them, obviously, when he was scoring goals. Um, I mean, the back four might allow Arsene Wenger, if he goes back to a back four, and I I really feel like he's going to at some point because I think he remains as unconvinced by the back three. I mean, wasn't there that great stat, the the Optus stat, where despite the fact Arsenal's results were better, the expected goals against was almost half a goal per game uh, greater with a back three than than a back four. But you're right in terms of the, the midfield. If he goes to a back four, he can put that extra body in midfield because I don't think he's going to get the defensive discipline he really wants with Aaron Ramsey and Granit Xhaka. I just think there are too many flaws to their games defensively. And I, a lot of the criticism that was aimed at Francis Coquelin was because he was being asked to do a different kind of a job than defensive midfielder. People were going, well, why is he pushing up the field? Why is he trying to close down? And obviously, he's being instructed to do that. But as somebody who could perhaps sit at the base of that midfield and do that, do that dirty work, if you like, um, it, it would seem a good way to address Arsenal's issues in midfield, given that nothing can be done about it in the transfer market. Yeah, I completely agree. I mean, uh, Coquelin isn't the kind of player you want starting every game, really, because he's, you know, I think in possession he's okay. He's nothing more than okay for the standard that Arsenal need. But sometimes you do just need that kind of solid, disciplined player to come in and, and do a job. And I think it's it's that kind of player Arsenal, this isn't a particularly original take, but it's that kind of player Arsenal haven't had enough of over the years. And I think this is really the time to, to use him, you know, when Arsenal's defence has been just readily exposed. You talked about how the three of the back formation allowed Arsene Wenger to use Mesut Ozil and Alexis Sanchez in, in broadly their, their best positions. Would a 4-3-3 system allow him to do likewise? I think Alexis Sanchez can play pretty much anywhere in any system. And I think the 4-3-3 is fine for him. Personally, I think Mesut Ozil is best as a number 10. I think when he's out wide, he struggles to kind of just 
find the pockets of space that he's so good at in more central positions. He did win the World Cup for Germany playing in a 4-3-3, usually on the left. But um, I've rarely been impressed with his performances for Arsenal in that position. Um, so, yeah, I mean, we'll have to wait and see. I still think 4-2-3-1 is probably the best formation for uh, for Arsenal to play. Roughly gets everyone into their best positions. And, uh, you know, personally, I think Arsenal will probably play that system uh, against Bournemouth. So you mean a 4 2 3 one with Ozil as the the furthest forward in that three? Yeah, Ozil is the number 10, essentially, and um, and Sanchez on the left, I think, works reasonably well. Uh, I mean, I'm not quite sure about the right side of midfield position. I think that's an, an area Arsenal haven't particularly solved in recent years. Um, I actually think in that system, also Chamberlain provided a nice bit of balance when you had Sanchez on the left. But um, it, it could work, you know, it could play into the hands of someone like Theo Walcott, who I don't think really suited the 3-4-3 system very well. So there's a couple of players it might favour. All right, maybe Danny Welbeck out on that right-hand side, but again, it's trying to find somebody with perhaps a bit more end product. Yeah, absolutely, which, um, you know, I found, I, I'm like everyone, you know, Danny Welbeck's a very useful, very talented player, but I think he's probably peaks now in terms of his technical quality, and I'm not sure whether that end product will ever come, which is a great shame because 90% of his game is absolutely fantastic. Yeah, if you could just add the goals. Um, all right, well, look, Michael, we better leave it there. Remember, Michael's book, The Mixer, is available in uh, all good bookshops now, also audiobook and digital. Thanks uh, for talking to us, Michael. Really appreciate it. No problem. Thank you. Thank you very much indeed to Michael. You know where to find him. He's on Twitter, at Zonal underscore marking, and his book, of course, The Mixer, which we spoke about uh, earlier in the summer you can go back a few episodes and find that if you like it's still available from all good bookshops amazon.co.uk in uh, all your book and digital and uh, it's a great look at the way tactics have developed over the 25 years or so of the Premier League speaking of Premier League it is back it's tomorrow it's Arsenal versus Bournemouth a game that you wouldn't necessarily put down as a test for Arsene Wenger, a manager as experienced as he is, a manager who's been in the job as long as he has, with the kind of track record that he has. But I think after what happened at Anfield, this is a challenge. This is a test because not only does he have to pick a team to win the game and to perform a far sight better than it did at Anfield, but he's also got to get them believing again. Believing A, in what they're doing, and also B, believing in him. And that's why I think we're going to move away from this back three system, if not tomorrow, certainly in the next few weeks, because I don't think they believe he believes in it. And I think that is transmitted in the performance that we saw at Anfield. I think for a manager to really instill the kind of belief players need to go out and perform, and I accept they're professional, they should give their best, and some of them uh, really didn't at Anfield. But I think they need to believe that their manager knows what he's doing and what he's talking about. And I don't think Arsene Wenger really believes in the back three system, and I think they know that, and I think he believes in a back four. I think he believes in playing a certain way. They've all played with him for so many years that they don't really trust in him when he's telling them what to do in a back three. And I think Arsene Wenger feels better as a manager and better as a coach when he's operating off a back three, or off a back four, rather. What he does in front of that, whether he plays three in midfield, two holding, one ahead, and then another three further forward, or one holding and two ahead, I don't I don't quite know. That's still open for discussion, but I do think that he's got to get this team believing in what he wants them to do again. And I think he's got a better job of doing that with a back four than a back three. So... 
We'll see what happens in that regard. The talent is there, clearly. The potential is there. We know we've seen this team perform a hell of a lot better. We've seen this team win big games against big teams over the last few seasons. Uh, I'm not talking about our record away from home, but when it really matters, we've been able to uh, dig out big results. So it's not a question of talent. It's a question of application and consistency. And that's something that uh, Per Mertesacker talked about. He talked about this team needing to prove that it can do it over the course of a season and not just on a cup run. And uh, they really do have to react. They've got to react to what happened at Anfield. The players have got to restore some pride in themselves and in the shirt, in the badge, in the club and all that kind of stuff. And the manager as well. He's got a job to do to convince fans that he can get this team playing again. And tomorrow is a good opportunity to do that. Bournemouth are a good team, but they're not the kind of team that's going to come and sit deep and uh, causes those kind of defensive problems that we really, really struggle with. They'll try and play a bit, and they may they may well have some success because we're, we're defensively brittle. But I think we'd rather play against a team like that than somebody who is going to park the bus, an Allardyce-type team who's going to make life really, really difficult for us. So it is there for us tomorrow to have a go and to really get a good result under our belts because you know we we really do need one next week we've got a Europa League game against FC Cologne and then it's Stamford Bridge on Sunday so we need to get motoring again we need to see a a, a better team a better performance a better manager um, a better everything than we saw last weekend at Anfield so fingers crossed we do that James and I will be here on Monday we'll have an Arscast Extra for you he'll be back from his honeymooning and all the rest let's hope we've got a goodly morning to uh, to talk about an Arsenal win and a good Arsenal performance uh, thank you as ever for being here hope you enjoyed the show I'll catch you on the next one until then cheers bye bye
Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. <laughs> 